Everybody and welcome to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV. You know, I always start the show saying something about that revolution. I love our theme song, but I got to tell you, after spending a couple of days in Knoxville, Tennessee, with all the Children's Health Defense Peets, um, in at their conference, a path forward, it has it has so begun. It is so exciting all of the awesome people that are joining together from all walks and all the aspects of the craziness going on, working together peacefully, passionately, um, plodding ahead on that way forward. So uh, we got it. And and today's show is pretty exciting. Um, let's go ahead and bring on my co-host here, Javier Figueroa. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, so I'm all on fire. I tell you, I have never felt, you know, I'm a pretty positive Pollyanna kind of gal, but I've never felt more positive than I do today after spending time with, I mean, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was there and Mary Holland and Polly Tommy and and Riley. Hello, Riley. She's, she's behind the scenes running the stream yard thing. I got to hug her and all of these fabulous people. I, I don't want to leave anybody out, but um, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. It, it's it's really awesome that we are so far into this and the court cases that are winning and the dozens and dozens of court cases lined up. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take this country back and it's going to be stronger, freer, and individuals are going to be more empowered than ever, understanding how important it is to preserve your freedom you know, daily in your life. Um, so, and so with that, so what do you need Javier to, to be free so that people can't trick you out of handing over your freedom? What do they need? They need information. They need knowledge. They need education, information, and knowledge. You betcha. And so I want you to start us off by explaining your role at the wonderful IPAC edu.org where we've we've talked about James Lines Weiler and that wonderful online university for the people um, by the experts actually exactly so um, tell us about this course that you're helping teach well right now uh, the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge IPAC is uh, putting on a course uh, and again the course it was developed uh, w- uh, with Andre Angelo. Oh, God, I can't oh, I always do that, too. I've known him for your Angela Tony. Angela Tony. Thank you. Andre Angela Tony, who worked with uh, several other uh, medical professionals and PhDs to develop this course. And it's it's called the vaccine course. So it's mm-hmm. basically an overview on the history of vaccines, uh, injury compensation, vaccines in developing countries, vaccines in underdeveloped countries, uh, why information is hidden, and also why they use mercury and aluminum or why they used to use, and some still use mercury, mm-hmm. and what causes autoimmunity and allergies, and also the controversy with Andy Wakefield, which nice. there have been no controversy at all, but it became so, yes. and the role of autism and autism recovery. And then finally, 
this is the best part. At the end of it, there will be a discussion on COVID vaccine. So it's a 14 unit course. It's 14 weeks. Uh, but the great thing is that it's uh, you can either watch it live or you can actually watch it later when you actually have the time. So this is course. This is information for people that work or don't work or just don't have time or mm-hmm. You know, they do have time, but they just want to go back and review things. It is so jam-packed with information. I've been learning something new every single time uh, I proctor it. So I'm helping uh, Andre with the course, uh, mm-hmm. being an active uh, presenter and instructor. Uh, and we have great people that attend it. So it's it's just fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, the kind of everybody's a different kind of learner. And I definitely need repetition. And especially when something is is so packed with things. If I just do something once, oh yeah, I grasp it, move on. And six months later, I have not reviewed it. It's not in my head. It slides right off. So um, I do need that repetition. So it's so great that IPAC always later on provides access to those videos. So at any time you can go back and watch and and really and really grasp it. I, a question for you real quick, and then we're going to get to our guest. Has Andre made available yet? He's been working on a website where you can look up so much. You know, it's like this encyclopedic website about vaccines, vaccine makers, and the history and the politics. Do you know if that's online yet? You know, that's a great question. I don't know. Okay. Well, but I'm sure maybe you can find out. There you go. I'll, that's one of the things I'll ask Andre. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. And, you know, so our guest this first hour is another IPAC EDU instructor. I didn't know until the show, but just before the show started, or maybe I was told and I forgot that Wayne Rohde, who is coming on now, who's an expert on the vaccine court that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the author of the book called The Vaccine Court. And he's also the author of an upcoming book I wanted to discuss that I just discovered is, you know, out there for pre-purchase, Vaccine Injury Compensation, I Can't Wait, by the new Children's Health Defense imprint. Pretty exciting. So welcome to an Informed Life Radio, Wayne Rohde. Well, thank you for allowing me to be here. Welcome to everyone. Well, you know, you are such a huge, important part of of the medical freedom movement, of the information educational movement, because there are so many aspects just on the the narrow, it's not narrow, but the subject of vaccines, nobody can be an expert on all these components. And anything tied with the government is is excessively complicated. So we're so appreciative that this in particular is your avenue that you've gone down and you've kept up um, learning about it. And as it changes, you're able to bring that to us. And we so appreciate that. Can you please um, begin, though, Wayne, with telling um, listeners how this all started for you, your personal journey that led you to knowing so much about the vaccine court? Okay, well, it started um, 25 years ago. My son, Nicholas, uh, whose birthday is tomorrow, he'll be 25. Um was injured by the vaccine, uh, the MMR vaccine, at the age of 13 months. Mm. Him and his twin brother both received the vaccine. That was their first vaccine they ever received. Um, we we wanted to delay as much as possible the schedule, and then we were just new parents. We didn't know anything different. 
-hmm. They were born a little premature, but they, by the age of 12 months, they were normal. They met, reached all their developmental milestones. And Nicholas received the MMR. And he had a severe reaction to it, and it lasted for about two weeks of solid crying and screaming and and high temperatures and vomiting and all the things that can happen to a little kid. And we were going back and forth with the pediatrician's office every day. Um, and finally, he started to calm down And after a couple of weeks. But we noticed that he had some behavioral issues when, as soon as he had the vaccine, and that is the arching of the back and screaming, which is mm -hmm. kind of some telltale signs of some type of an encephalopathy type reaction. But you mm -hmm. wouldn't, we we didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the time he was 18 months, he started losing his speech that he mm -hmm. had. He had a language at the age of 12 months, and he started losing this speech. He started doing the obsession with you know, looking at the ceiling fans and then playing with things in his hand and stemming. And he didn't want to play with his brother. And it he slowly regressed. And then by the time uh, we figured out something, we, we uh, had an appointment. We were living in Oklahoma at the time. We met up. Um, it took us a, almost 14 months to get an appointment with someone. We were thinking... We were dreading the word autism. We, my wife and I were just calling it the letter A. And um, she was Columbia-trained um, psychiatrist. And she, after um, two and a half days meeting with us, meeting with Nicholas, she gave uh, him the, uh, the diagnosis of severe autism, and actually severe regressive autism. Yeah. And with that, she gave us a... Uh, two pages that was Xerox were copied out of a textbook from her from Columbia University. It says, this is all I know about autism as far as what to do to treat it. I know how to diagnose it, but I don't know what to treat it, along with the prescription for Ritalin. We go out in the parking lot and we trash the, the uh, prescription. And we said, no, we're not going to do this. Um, took them home. And then that's when we started the journey of trying to figure out what autism is all about. What can we do? Mm -hmm. behavioral, you know, treatments, you know, anything we could do with that. And then over the course of the next couple of years, we started figuring out, okay, you know, uh, got him into some occupational therapy and some speech therapy. Um, I was trying to figure out how to pay for all the therapy bills because insurance was denying all this stuff because he had this diagnosis of autism in his medical records now. Um, so I kind of went that way, and that is, as I started looking for insurance coverage for autism and other disabilities in Oklahoma. And at the same time, my wife was trying to figure out what caused it. And she started doing deep dive into it. And she found uh, the organization MVIC.org, which is Barbara Lowe Fisher's group. And from there, she was able to figure out, well, it's possibly we have a vaccine reaction. She contacted an attorney who happened to be Cliff Shoemaker, Hannah Poling's mm. attorney, several mm -hmm. years later. And we sent him three boxes, bankers boxes, if you know what a banker's box looks like, you're really huge where you put tons of files in them, three full boxes up to his office there in Virginia. And it took him about a week to get back to us. And he said, you got a great case here, except for one thing, and that's statute of limitations. Oh, when we yeah. looked at it, by the time the 
the symptoms manifested themselves. And by the time we were going to file, it was three years, nine months. So mm -hmm. we were nine months too late. We couldn't do anything about it. Oh. Okay. So we accepted that. We got the documents back. And then we just kind of pushed forward to trying to figure out how to pay for it insurance wise. And that's what we were doing and what I was doing in the, in, in uh, 2005, 2006, all the way up in 2007, when insurance coverage started to be in a battle in every state. Um, and Oklahoma became ground zero in 2009 uh, because there was just a few states that passed it. And Oklahoma, we were making a lot of popular headway, but the legislature says, hell no, we're not going to do this. We're going to protect the insurance industry. Mm -hmm. Um that led us to where we were just spending too, just too much. We were spending about $3,000 cash out of pocket every month providing the therapies that Nick needed that weren't covered by health insurance. Mm -hmm. And it was just going to the point where we were just going to go broke. And we started looking around um, and found Minnesota is one of those states that did have coverage. So we decided, you know, we're going to look at Minnesota. I grew up as a kid in North Dakota, went to college in Texas. So, you know, I'm up and down in the Midwest here. And my wife got recruited for a, a pretty high-end uh, position as an IT director uh, for a financial institution. And we decided to move up to Minnesota. When I went, when we got up to Minnesota, I got back into my notebooks of what caused Nicholas's reaction. And that's where I contacted, you know, I, I was always been in touch with uh, Bob Krakow for a few years before that and Lou Conti. And then that's where I contacted Mary, Mary Holland. And they encouraged me to do something that I was been thinking about. And I, I asked them ever since the experience, knowing what happened with uh, the statute <clears throat> of limitations, I'm going, what happened to these other families? What did they experience? And, so they encouraged me to start talking to these families. So that's what I did. I started interviewing families, ended up interviewing over 285 families. And Lou Conti, a good friend of mine who we all know, uh, said, I can get you a book deal. Let's put a book together for you of experiences. But I also started wanting to dig into the program itself and have kind of like a uh, an intermediate or beginning primer, if you will, of the program. So my first book, which was called The Vaccine Court, The Dark Truth of America's uh, Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, came out in November of 2014. Um, and then I started doing some additional writing and, you know, blogging and other research. My uh, publisher, editor, contacted me uh, a couple years ago and said, we would like to do a revision of your first book because your first book sold out. And I said, okay, let me do that. And that's when I started putting in some additional chapters. I put in SIDS, chapter on SIDS and why we no longer compensate for that. I put a chapter in Gardasil and all the problems you see now. Um, talk about why the program is no longer for children. It's all about adults and the flu shots. And a few other things, the backstory of the unanswered question. Spent a lot of time with Mary and a few others trying to get them as they went through their journey of putting together the unanswered questions paper. Right. So I wrote a backstory and it's kind of fascinating. We had a kind of like that, the deep throat movement from Watergate where Lou Conti gets a phone call 
Um, and it's some, and he's sitting there up in New York and he gets a phone call from somebody in Washington DC area and says, there's many more continue looking. He did not know who it was from. He couldn't tell. And it just, and and he goes crazy about this. And he Mm -hmm. told me about this and this, it kind of reminds me of what happened to Bob Woodward in, you know, and, um, Mm uh, what happened with, uh, uh, the, uh, deep throat era of uh, right. all the president's men and yeah stuff. back yeah. when journalists though were journalists right you could find ethical journalists yeah <laughs> so and then it, you know talked to cheryl atkinson and everything and, and started putting things together and the last book came out in june of 2021 and then my editor publisher says last fall says we want another book so i said okay Let's do a book, but I'm not going to do a book on the MVICP or the vaccine court because it's just, yeah, you know, I, I can go into real deep into the weeds then, but I don't want to do that. So I'm not what I'm writing now is about the global compensation programs around the world in all these different countries, talking about their traditional vaccines if they had something, mm-hmm. and then how they're treating COVID uh, right. injuries and stuff like this. So that, it's a lot more complicated. It's going to take a lot more time because you're trying to be contacting people in different countries. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of three o'clock in the morning interviews because mm-hmm. you're talking to somebody in Singapore or, you know, uh, you know, stuff like this, even talking to people in Pakistan. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Pakistan? That's where I'm at. Yeah. Pakistan, <laughs> China, they have, comp- they, they're, they're doing something. Yeah, Pakistan's not doing much, but they're doing something. They're doing but- something. That's amazing. And what what, what I what I find will be really fascinating for people to kind of understand. It's one thing for the for you know the drug industry to sort of be doing this to Americans, but when you realize this is how they act around the globe, and they're holding everybody captured this way, and you know they're withholding their products unless you know you give them this liability shield, and compensation programs have to be set up through the government, not funded by the industry. It's it's just crazy. Um, Wayne, I wanted to show you for, you know, some of my viewers and listeners are new and there's there's still even people who really get what's going on now. They they still it's been planted for so long that vaccines don't cause autism that I just I want to point out my favorite place to to show that will help open minds for sure. So they understand. So I'm going to share with you now. Are you guys seeing this CDC page? Yes. Does that show up? Okay. So all you do is you search on your favorite search engine, CDC, vaccines, autism, and you can find, do vaccines cause autism, ASD? And they say, oh, no, 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 no. We've done all the studies, blah, blah, blah. But what I like to do then is have people read it thoroughly and that you, they'll find out quickly if they actually follow the citations that they're seeing one vaccine researched and one ingredient researched, not all of them, not all together, not different combinations, not finding the susceptibility of some children and all that. You know what I mean? But what I like to right. do is direct them down to, let's see, where did it go? They've rearranged their page recently, so it's not popping out here. Imagine that. Look at this. They're talking about regressive encephalopathy. This is really, I'm going to have to go explore this because they didn't used to. When did they do this? September of 2021. They changed it. But hold on. 
Okay, you guys, I'm going to do, I need to find it. The, the word, I, I'm looking for the antigen study. Anybody see the antigen study? Did they take it down because I'm, I'm talking about so much? You know what? I, I don't see it. I don't see it. Wow. Okay. So I, I, I'm going to stop sharing and I'll find it. Um, I'll find it on the break and maybe be able to show it. Stop sharing. There we go. Um, so it used to be on that page, which they've completely, I got to read that because it looks like there's a lot more denial. You would click on the, their 2013 antigen study by their own people. And you went and looked at it and they said, this is further proof that vaccines, plural, don't cause autism. And you go look at it and it's a group of kids who got one amount of level of antigen in their vaccines versus another group of kids who got another level right. of antigens in their vaccines, right? You're familiar with this antigen study and it's tobacco science. This group of smokers got cancer and this group of smokers got cancer. Therefore, smoking doesn't cause cancer, you know, that sort of a thing. Or actually like they got this amount of tar in their cigarettes and this amount of tar, therefore tar is not associated with cancer. You know, I mean, it, it kind of took it to that level. Um, but when you go down to the end, in the discussion section, the authors, CDC authors state, in cases of a regressive autism in which a child is developing normally and then regresses, we cannot rule out environmental factors, including vaccines. It says it right there. And I've been mm -hmm. I've been sharing this and talking about it a couple of years. So it doesn't surprise me if they eliminated from that page because it completely counters what they said. Um, so, yes, um, Wayne, I'm very, very sorry that your son experienced that. But, um, you know, you, you are a gift to us and you've made good use of your tragic journey to help save others. And so we appreciate that very much. Um, well, thank you for your kind words. Appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about ASIP. Um, tell uh, viewers <laughs> what ASIP is and what they just said and what the heck this might mean. <laughs> We're going to go down this rabbit hole. Okay. Yeah, okay, a, a little bit because I, I want you to kind of explain to people that it's not an automatic under that vaccine injury compensation program. That's where we're going to lead to. Well, I'm going to step back a little bit. And okay. This is that it's a four to me. It's a four, in my opinion, this is all a foregone conclusion. Right. They're playing out a strategy that's been in place for 25, almost 30 years now. And it's um, for a lot of people, if you, if you're not understand the beginnings of go back to the 1970s, you can see how this whole thing starts playing out. The ASIP is a, is a subcommittee of CDC that's used to uh, vote to approve uh, vaccines. One of their duties is vote to approve vaccines for the uh, the children's schedule or to approve for adults slash pregnant mothers. And that's what they did last week. And, and they took the data, whatever data they had, they had something, we believe it's not much, but they had something. And they voted to approve adding uh, the, uh, the uh, COVID vaccine jab or COVID-19 jabs, if you will, and add them to the schedule. Uh, we're looking at that in detail because 
we're trying to understand the legality of what that means. What that, you know, what, what's downstream, what, what actually happens. Um, now regarding states actions, we knew this vote was going to come at some point this year. And the reason is you've got to keep in mind August 20th of 2023. That's a big date. That's right. And it has to do with back to school of next fall. Kids generally start around that date in some states. Some states wait until after Labor Day. So there's a process to get to that date. And the long the long goal here is to get kids vaccinated. And the only way to do that is to mandate it in the states for public education. Mandating it for not public education doesn't quite get there where they want it to go. Thank you. My um, mic was turned off. You're saying that the, the actual goal is to get these COVID shots into kids. Right. You know, and so I'd like to talk a little bit. My feeling is not so much, although who knows, it depends on what, what you think they really are doing with these shots. I feel mm -hmm. like they they want to get it into kids only because they want it on the schedule, only because they want the liability. But do you, or are all of these at play? Do you think that whatever's in these shots, that some people are really fearful of what they may do, causing sterility, causing tracking? I don't know. Sure. I mean, I'm not saying that's true. Do you think that that component is there? Well, one thing is, is that uh, in October of 2024, the PrEP Act is set to sundown, retire, for COVID-related, unless the secretary keeps renewing the public health emergency and then reauthorizes the PrEP Act for COVID-related right. outbreak. Okay. We already, and then have, we, we already have another PrEP Act running around right now for monkeypox. Right. Okay, so we're running right. similar paths here. So question. Now, sooner or later, that vaccine okay. is going to have to come out of the PrEP Act. Yes, but Wayne, I got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Smallpox vaccine is always mm -hmm. under the countermeasures program. Even if there's not right. emergency, right? It's always under that. I began thinking lately that they may spend they may keep, even if they take the emergency away, they may keep these COVID shots under the countermeasures program for quite a while in order not to absolutely drain the VICP. So they might have some time switch there is just what I'm thinking. I, I don't know your thoughts on that, but if there is a mechanism because they do it with smallpox by which you can keep CICP over a shot but I don't know if that can be done if it's on the the schedule. It seems like they can do anything they want these days. But um, well, you, you you could be correct there, and that is is that they can do anything they want. But the issue here is is that the coat. See, we never had an emergency use use authorization of a smallpox vaccine. Right. Okay. So we do for the monkeypox vaccine you know what is whatever that 
name is, and I don't even pay attention to it right now. Um, the Ginios. I can't even pronounce. Yeah. 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 Um, so you have a COVID, the COVID injectables, the jabs, you've got multiple thing, uh, multiple producers of it. And that this uh, PrEP Act will expire unless we have another major outbreak of COVID virus. We don't know what will happen. Sooner or later, the it's already been signaled through our government that the government no longer wants to be in the business of purchasing the COVID jabs and giving them for free. So the only way to do that is to sell it. And to sell it, you're going to have to get it on the schedule because that is, when you put it on a schedule, pharma likes those schedules, whether it's for adults, whether it's for children, because it's a it's a revenue stream that they know they can count on. Okay? They can't, yes. we're not buying any more COVID jabs right now. The government's yes. not buying anymore. They're giving it away to third world countries. Yeah, Pfizer's not getting any more money from us from their uh, commodity or the EUA product. I call it Cinderella because I can never pronounce it. <laughs> um, and 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 so they aren't making money right now from us. They made billions, seventy-seven billion, in over the last two years. Pfizer did with you know the the jabs and Paxlovid and whatever else. Um, so they need new revenue stream. And the way they get to revenue stream is they have to have it on a schedule. Okay? Yeah. To get it on the schedule, you have to have ASIP. That's the first step. Then the, the second, the ASIP doesn't mean, the, the ASIP vote doesn't mean it goes into the states and the states start mandating because it's still, uh, I think, what, 31 states? has uh, where they get to decide it's not an automatic trigger. Right. Like Minnesota, we it's not automatic here in my home state of Minnesota. Department of Health Commissioner has, to, has what they call rulemaking authority to decide if they want to accept it and place it on the schedule and mandate it for public education. Just one and person, so, just the commissioner? That's correct. The commissioner has it, but there is a way to challenge it. And that is mm -hmm. like in, in many states, we're looking into it. Rulemaking authority doesn't mean the commissioner just gets to choose it and then that's the law. They get to choose it, but then the citizens and the legislatures can come back in and demand public hearings. And that forces a hearing in front of an administrative law judge uh, to actually prove it. And then that's where, like what they tried to do here in 2013 in Minnesota, um, and we were able to beat back some of the additional vaccines that were going to be added to the schedule here nice. um, in this state. Yeah. Um, well, hold that thought, Wayne. I just want to let everybody know that whatever state you're in, you probably have some pro every state is different. Uh, the process uh -huh. that it takes in Washington state, it's a 10 member board of health that is selected by the governor who by law mm -hmm. were get, have the authority to write rules to add or remove shots from the schedule. They've never removed a shot from the schedule that I'm aware of, even though we tried to get them to do it. Um, in the state of Tennessee, where I am now, we also have a health commissioner 
who by law mm-hmm. has been given the authority to add. And I'm just looking into now the process. Will rulemaking have to take place to slow this commissioner down? Every state will be different. And I encourage anybody who wants to get proactive in their state so mm-hmm. that they can begin fighting now instead of waiting till August of 2023, start now, get a hold of the the medical freedom group in your state, Uh, look on CHD, uh, Children's Health Defense for Chapters, go to healthchoice.org, look for their friends and affiliates to find freedom groups. Um, If you can't find one in your state, email me, Bernadette at informedchoicewa.org, and I will help you find uh, an organization in your state that knows the rules and laws in your state and how to take action. So thank you, Wayne. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knows that there are things mm-hmm. they can do and they got to start now fighting it. Right. Right. Okay. Well, let's take, let's take a specific vaccine that's already been gone through the process. And okay. I'll tell you what actually happens. And let's go back okay. to Gardasil. Oh. Okay. And Gardasil, um, Merck completed uh, clinical trials around the world with 11,000 women 11,000 women over or spread around the world for i think about five years which is a very small subset it should have you know you should have had several uh, you know 200,000 300,000 would given a better number okay they took that information and then they submit it to the fda for licensure approval full licensure approval that process on average, takes at least three years to go and review the application and then make the, uh, for FDA to actually look at it, review the data, and then vote on it and approve it. Gardasil was fast-tracked through the FDA for six months. It took them they, six months, boom, moved in. What reason? Within th- what's that? Did they give a reason why it needed to be fast-tracked when it takes about 50 years to develop can- cervical cancer? Okay. No, we don't. We don't know that. I. It's just. Who knows? But what I did is I. I, I was my research looking at the vaccine injury table, how to add a vaccine to a table, and without a lot of approval. But they fast tracked it. From there, three months later, ASIP approves it. Okay, so now it's approved. And. What they did there is, is that um, the secretary of HHS puts it into, announces the intent of bringing that vaccine into the MVICP and puts the notice inside the federal register, okay, which is several thousands of pages every, every day, the business, <clears throat> it's the business journal of our federal government and go from there. And they put it under, and I got this note here, I was looking at the category 14 of the injury table, which means is that it's a high priority um, and extends coverage for a new vaccine for routine administration to children and only children at the time. So it was put into the program on a fast track basis, all the way from FDA approval, CDC, ACIP approval, Secretary of HHS into the program without an injury table, meaning they're going to take the vaccine, and if there's any injuries, you've got to prove every injury. Generally, the vaccines that are in the program 
and we're talking about the MVICP, have a list of certain uh, known injuries, anaphylactic shock or allergic reaction, might cause seizures, um, things like this that have been developed over the last 20 to 30 years, IOM at the time would weigh in and say, priority, uh, look at these types of, of, of studies and say, yes, it can occur with the whatever. Yeah. Uh, and let me shot. just, um, sorry, Wayne, I just want to explain to our listeners that IOM is the Institute of Medicine. That's its old name. And it used, it was supposed to be independent, but it wasn't. Um, organization that was uh, tasked by law to mm-hmm. uh, regularly oversee vaccine safety. And I forget what they're called now. Do you happen to recall their new name? I think IOM it's National so Academy easy. of Medicine. N- That's N-A-M. it. I, yep. National Academy of Medicine. Okay. They have not put out a review in a very long time, have they? Did uh, 2013. <laughs> uh, they're way overdue. Yeah. Nine? Okay. Well, generally they publish every two to three years. They'll review <laughs> things. Okay. Um, and and the and what they put out in 2013 was very small. It was very specific, narrow, focused. Um, and it kind of led to the emphasis of adding, you know, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome and uh, shoulder injury to the flu shot and the Tdap booster. And that's what kind of started the process because, you know, uh, people were developing those injuries pr- prior to that, but then they released that information and then and got agreed upon. And then uh, the secretary of HHS adopted it as a table injury. And that's where it is today. But Gardasil, hepatitis A were added without any injury, known injuries to the program. Hmm. Okay. And my concern is, is that this is what's going to happen to COVID when it's brought into the program. I don't know if anybody read my uh, Substack article today, earlier, I was published earlier today. I made the argument that we don't need a vaccine injury table for COVID. And the reason why is a little different. Who's going to have input into developing a table and looking at all the injuries. The liars. Pharma is going to have the loudest voice. They're going to create a table that is so restrictive and make it virtually impossible to have a table injury. Okay. So they're going to say, oh, we're going to accept myocarditis up until 20 days after administration. Yeah, they, do, they monkey with windows to make it to cut you down. Yeah, right. Well, what they did is the secretary of HHS adopted, get this, the smallpox vaccine injury table that was developed 17 years ago. And they put it into the countermeasures injury compensation program to be used to measure a standard of proof for all COVID jab related injuries. Okay, so what does these two have in common? Nothing. <laughs> but they do, but but they what they do have is is that the injury table does allow for anaphylactic shock up to four hours later. Um, it does have myocarditis in there up to yes. 21 days. But I've been visiting with quite a few people who are very well versed in myocarditis, and I think Dr. Peter McCullough and, and a few others come, and I had a lengthy conversation with them. 
He's very concerned about the younger people that would develop myocarditis at a much later stage, meaning four weeks and five weeks and six weeks out instead of three weeks out, which is the normal for someone my age. As an older person, I would develop myocarditis possibly sooner than later. And the younger people who are going to be mandated for school might develop it several so they're not going to have be eligible for compensation because in the CICP you're not allowed to prosecute your case with medical experts and yeah. experienced attorneys so once yeah. again it's it's the injured person submitting paperwork and they're going to look at oh your myocarditis occurred on day 34 we aren't we can't do anything about that dismissed you're denied so my argument again is, do we really want a table right now? Maybe in a few years, we're so new at this, we don't know all the injuries. My interviews with a lot of people who have been injured, they've got weird, bizarre injuries yeah. that no one really knows or combinations of things, and we still don't know. And, they're, and their medical conditions are changing. They're morphing. Mm -hmm. They're So... It might mm -hmm. help a few people, but it could be really be difficult for the vast majority of them. Yeah. So my argument was, is that do we really want this? No. Right. Yeah. So like when when they start with an injury table, if they add and already have one preformed, is it very is it more difficult to get things added to it than if it just starts from the get go with that? But well, I mean, there's, let's let's talk about that and two different paths here. Let's talk okay. about an existing table getting modified. Okay. Okay. The last time that was done was Guillain-Barre and shoulder injury for generally for the adult vaccines, and that was done in 2017. Before that, when was the last time? No idea. No idea. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. They've removed Everything's things, been but they had to add it's things. Been a, it's, it's been restricting and restricting and restricting yeah. and restricting. When you go into, so you the, the, the way you look at it is you're only going to have one bite at the apple here when you're going to put a table together. Right. Mm. And you're not going to have the loudest voice. Pharma is going to dominate this thing. So what do you, what do you start with? Well, to start a table... The current legislation that was offered by uh, in the Senate the, earlier this year by a few senators, uh, Lee Johnson and Hyde Smith, have all outlined that a secretary of HHS will form a commission to create a table within two years. To create a table within two years, National Academy of Medicine is going to have to step up. They're going to have to review the literature and say yes or no, whatever, you're going to have to have a medical consensus um, for certain things. Most of the doctors right now are refusing to acknowledge the COVID jab causes any injury other than a little soreness at the injection site. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it is going to be extremely difficult to get a table developed one, mm -hmm. in time, and two, to be meaningful. 
it will yeah. probably be what you have now. And that is, is that it's going to be misapplied um, and it, it doesn't punish. So we're, it's going to, this is going to be a difficult process. It's going to be, it's going to be ugly. Um, mm-hmm. You do not want to watch how it's being made just like sausage and like the other political legislation. Um, but most people don't need to be concerned about it because there's nothing really they can do about it. What we're trying to figure out, does Congress have the courage to go in and actually write legislation and take it out of the Secretary of HHS's hands and actually create something that's halfway decent? Now, pharma's going to have a big say in that. And I don't know what to do. Um, my thought was is that forget forget the table. Modify the program to allow medical expert re- medical expert cost reimbursements, attorney fee reimbursements, and allow pain and suffering. Yeah, uh, under under the, the under the CICP, right? Yeah, not the VI. And and and, yeah. and let everybody take take their chance having an attorney, medical experts litigate for their on behalf of them, and let the science win out. And I'll bet you we'll have a more beneficial program mm-hmm. in the next five years than you would if you developed some type of a COVID-related table that's very restrictive. Granted, there's going to be people that are going to be dismissed either way. They're not going to be, everybody's going to be happy. But yeah. we've, this thing's a mess. Yeah. Uh, our government has put us in a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know the, the best way out of it that's actually feasible. It's going to cost a lot of money. I estimate it's going to cost us at least a trillion dollars over the next five years to fix the damage done by the COVID um, jabs, if you will, and also the other countermeasures related to COVID, such as remdesivir, such as ventilators and all this other stuff. It's going to be a mess, and I just don't Mm -hmm. know where it's going to happen, what's going to happen. No, it, it's so staggering how huge it is. And they would have to extend the statute of limitations on the CICP. It's only a year now. And then how do you go between if it ever does move over to the VICP? What well, would that crossover? If, you've, if it's been four years, you're just out of luck. You don't get two years here. Well, you, 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 you bring up the good point that statute of limitations will have to be modified. I think yeah. what will happen where I really think what will happen is, is that they're going to move the people who are injured with the full BLA product, which is nobody right now, but mm-hmm. it's going forward. There'll be some form of being able to litigate and they're going to have to form like an omnibus for mm-hmm. all those who have been injured, which will probably be, you know, 15 to 20,000 people in it, maybe break it up into some subgroups and, because that's all EUA product. And I don't know what, you know, it's, if they move that Congress can move it over into the MVICP, if they want to, they have to modify or to uh, amend the language, the statute language, right. And then bring everybody over because right now the program, it does not, uh, uh, does not allow uh, uh, any vaccine other than full licensed vaccines. This is meaning the BLA version. Mm-hmm. This is just such an incredibly criminal act uh, mm-hmm. of negligence on the part of the government 
for allowing this sort of behavior to, to take place and giving such blanket yep. immunity, especially for a, a gene therapeutic. And again, there's already regulations in FDA that prohibit disp dispensing gene therapies for 15 years until after you get all the clinical trials in place. It is It just floors me that there hasn't been a RICO case against Moderna and Pfizer for colluding and defrauding the government by bypassing those laws under an EUA program. Uh, you know, Javier Becerra and all these folks at HHS, they need to be investigated to see what sort of, uh, you know, how they colluded to make this happen. This is, this is unconscionable. Well, you know, you got to get a Congress to have the, the courage to conduct hearings on that. But let me make one point here. Uh, that is, is that with the ACIP vote, that's just the first step. The secretary of HHS, and when I talked to you about was August of 2023, was, mm -hmm. you got to look at the timeline. Secretary of HHS is going to publish in the Federal Register, I anticipate within the next 30 days, the intent to bring it into the program. That takes six months to nine months to get done because the process of publish, publicizing it, allowing for public comment, responding to the public comment all in the Federal Register. Congress, in the meantime, will hold a vote to create a tax on that jab, that vaccine, or whatever you want to. So the federal government is no longer in the business of giving it away. It'll be sold. Private insurance and doctors will have to buy it, and people are going to be charged for it. You saw the news earlier this week. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're going to increase it from $30 a vial to $130 a vial. Uh, so you see, pharma's already getting ready for all this. Mm -hmm. That puts us into the summer of 2023. And the states will then, the states will then, once it's in the program, the MVICP, they'll have the full immunity. And that's when the states, certain states will announce, you need it to go to school for, or to daycare. Okay. So it's got to be done in that process. And boom, there you are. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you said it. I mean, it, it looks to me like you are spot on of what could happen. So we've only got a couple more minutes here, Wayne. Mm -hmm. What I would love for you to do is advise people who want to get busy right now. And I already you know, told people, go find the medical freedom group in your state who knows how things work mm -hmm. in your state. What would you advise people to do? What sort of actions should they take to begin fighting this to get vocal? Do you have any advice? Well, what I'd, some people approached me last night at, a, at an event um, and here in, in the Twin Cities area, and I was there, and they asked, and I said, well, here's what you, you need to become aware of the process of what it takes to bring a vaccine and put it on the schedule in that state. Oh yeah, Whether put it on the school requirement, right? Yeah, right. You got to be, you got to be familiar inside and out, and you're going to have to become an expert at it because the state legislators may or may not know everything about it. They're oh, going to have a lot not. of turnover in many states this yeah. November. Once the elections are done, and I you know, we get this process done, you'll have your, le your legislators. You need to contact them and find out, you let them know your concerns, find the health freedom groups that are in your state and get busy, started, try to figure out what's the next steps if it's going to be an administrative rule 
process hearing, if it's going to be the legislature has oversight and it gets to approve it, or does the governor get to say yes or no? Who knows? Um, but I also think that the uh, the large advocacy groups, awareness groups, um, CHD, and, I, and I've had a brief conversation with Mary this past weekend. I think they're going to start working with their state chapters and mm -hmm. start getting this thing done. Mm -hmm. Granted, cer certain states are going to pass this, um, you know, are going to accept it no matter what. A lot yeah. of states are going to give pushback. Yeah. yeah. Find out what we can do in each state. That sounds great. And I, I have an additional question. Do you think it's in the best interest of the of the COVID shot vaccine injured, right? The COVID injured mm -hmm. for it to be put under the VIC program in order to maybe get some benefits? So do you think, you know, we might we might fight mandates at the state level because we don't want it pushed on our kids, but do we want it on the schedule and under the VICP so that some of these injured can get compensation? What are your thoughts? Well, up until two months ago, I would have said, no, we do not want it in the program. Because once you put it in the program or show the intent to put it in the program, it gets mandated for kids. And that's uh, the worst thing we can have done. Right. We're already past that step. Okay. So, yes, the MVICP is the better place because it does provide <coughs> adequate funding for injuries, pain and suffering. Yeah, okay. CICP okay. does not have pain and suffering. And then you have a better chance of actually prevailing yeah. in the uh, program. Yeah. We got like 15 but, seconds, Wayne. Where, where can people find you and find your books? Well, uh, the book is uh, the uh, uh, out on the internet. Uh, the internet, excuse me, not the interstate, but the internet. <laughs> uh, the vaccine court, uh, dot com, and my Substack is the vaccine court slash Substack uh, dot com. Awesome, and you can find thank my you. Ring. And they'll find you. There we go. Thank you, Dr. X. Uh, thank you, Wayne Rohde. I'm sorry we're out of time. Thank you for being our guest. We'll have you on again. You can keep us updated. You've been listening to an Informed Life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHDTV. We're going to come back and then we're going to have another guest. Stay tuned. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. 
That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHDTV. I'm glad you're here with us this evening. I've got Dr. Javier Figueroa with me. Hello. Hello. Yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? That first hour we had Wayne Rohde telling us about NVIC, CICP, all these different things, and it can get really complicated. The bottom line is kids and adults are being injured by these shots and not being adequately compensated or in the, in the case of the COVID shots, not compensated at all. Exactly. Their debt is piling up and it's, it's over. We have to take care of these people. Our, our nation owes them. I feel, um, you know, reparations as much as we can. We, we just can't write them off. We have to take care of them as best we can as a community, as a nation, um, you know, um, our next, our next guest is going to be really, I just, I so admire him. I recently met him. Um, I've got, I, I found that study. I had the wrong CDC autism thing and I want to talk about that, but I want to bring on our next guest because I want him to hear. Um, it is Bill Sullivan and there he is. Hi, Bill. Hello, Bernadette. Hey. Hello, how are this, Have you ever... You met him just a little bit earlier, and um, he did hail from Washington State, but he now moved to Idaho. He, like me, is still fighting in Washington, but he's residing in a more free state. <laughs> well, I'm um, also from Washington, and I went to high school with the Javier Figueroa. So, uh, no way. Okay. We know each other. <laughs> Are you guys know each other? No, no, no. I, I actually, I, I emigrated to uh, to Washington in, in 97, so well out of okay. high school at that point. All right. All right. Um, but uh, Bill Sullivan is on the Board of Health in Chelan, Douglas County in Washington State. And he's got an interesting journey that I want I want him to tell us about. But because you are now a public health official in the state of Washington, I wanted to bring in a little bit about from our first hour, something we talked about, because, you know, counties and states, they promote they mandate, they encourage, um, they purchase, they distribute vaccine products. And um, it's really important that these products are treated like pharmaceutical products, like biological products, that they are consumer products. Take away the halo of the big V, the big vaccine, and let's just look at products and what the science says. So in the last hour, I was showing our guests my favorite place to say to go to 
when somebody says, oh, it's just a myth that vaccines cause autism, there's just no way, you know. Um, and so I go to the CDC. I just type in in the search engine CDC vaccines autism and you get to their page. And I had found in the last hour the wrong page. There was an FAQ, a frequently asked question page that didn't have the study I was looking for. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and show you now. Let's see how do I do this. Um, going to share. And here we go. So it is actually this page, which is autism and vaccines. This is the page you're looking for if you want to like have somebody be open minded to the scientific discussion and the medical discussion of possibilities. I like to start here. So it says vaccines, plural, do not cause autism. Um, and you go down here, here's what it says. A CDC study published in 2013 added to the research showing that vaccines do not cause ASD. The study focused on the number of antigens given the, during the first two years of life. Antigens are substances and vaccines that cause the body's immune system to produce disease-fighting antibodies. There's a lot more, right, in these vaccine products than just the antigens, but this is what the study was focused on only. The results showed that the total amount of antigen from vaccines received from the same was the same between children with ASD and those that did not have ASD. Okay, so I'm gonna stop sharing here and you can click on that, but um, I've got that loaded on another page. So Javier, you're a research scientist, right? So tell me about a study design that exposes two groups to the same, looking to something with many aspects of it and only looks at the quantity of one and there is no unexposed control group. Tell me about, is that a strong study design? It's a, it's a weak study design. Uh, there's too many other uh, confounding variables, especially in a product that contains what up to 12 or 13 different compounds in it. And then you don't, uh, you know, there's no control for genetic background, previous uh, uh, disease categories or disease exposures, or even prior vaccines, things like that. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's now a, a significant, uh, significant literature that has looked at genetic background and people's responses to particular exposures to specific proteins or specific uh, uh, compounds yes. uh, contained in that. So it's, it's not a strong study. It is a, um, it is a very, um, I don't want to say weak because it's not accurate. It is, it's got too many confounding variables to give you a clear answer as to whether or not it, you know, they can come to the conclusions that you can come to. Right. They, they didn't look at the level of um, adjuvant any of the children were exposed to. But I, I, what you're saying there is one of my favorite expressions. Genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. For some children, one vaccine is enough to cause harm. Other children, it was the 21st vaccine that caused harm because we're all different right? We're, we're not the same. We are not one size fits all in medicine. So anyway, so I wanted to just then go ahead and show you, this is the study, increasing exposure to antibody stimulating proteins and polysaccharides and vaccines is not associated with risk of autism. So one ingredient, the level of one ingredient 
You know, it's like I said before, two groups of smokers, one got one level of tar, the other got another level of tar, there was autism in both groups, therefore tar is not related to autism, right? It's, to me, it's tobacco science. But, um, oh, hold on. Did it switch over to this page, Journal of Pediatrics up in the, let me look to see. Um, it, that that didn't have the full study, so I'm going to have to stop sharing and because okay. I had to go over and get the um, the full study, and that's on another page. I wish I was faster at this, but I'm not. Okay, um, let's see if this is it. Increasing, it's this one. There we go. Okay, now are you seeing this? It's just the paragraphs. No, we're not seeing anything yet. Not seeing anything yet. You should be seeing it in just a second here. Why isn't it going over? It says on my side that it's... There we sharing. go. There we, we got it. Okay. And as I told you in the first hour, this is the paragraph down here. I want you to see this is the discussion of the authors. And right here is the sentence. Um the possibility that immunologic stimulation from vaccines during the first one to two years of life could be related to the development of ASD is not well supported by the known neurobiology of ASD. When they wrote this in 2013, perhaps that was the case. I don't think so even then, but there's so much more science that, you know, actually says that part's not accurate. But anyway, which tends to be genetically determined with origins and prenatal development. Although possible effects in early infancy cannot be ruled out completely. It can be argued that ASD with regression in which children usually lose developmental skills during the second year of life could be related to exposures in infancy, including vaccines. This is the CDC study. They just said it could be vaccines. We still don't know. But it says, however, we found no association between exposure to antigens from vaccines during infancy and the development of ASD with regression. So this is wordsmithing, right? Wordsmithing. Right. It's, it's very frustrating. And so we have Bill Sullivan, who really tries to be an ethical, honest, um, critical thinker sitting on a board of health attempting to bring, you know, facts to the table. And there's times when I've been observing the meeting, he's being met with, um, what would be the polite word? <laughs> um, well, just resistance. <laughs> but just, I would say resistance because it doesn't match what they were taught. It doesn't match the narrative, um, right? So anyway, this is the sort of stuff, Bill, if you continue, if we continue to interact, I'm happy to supply you with just the facts, ma'am, right? right. <laughs> so to, to help you and, and any public servant out there who wants information, uh, there are so many people that would love to just give you what you need to give anybody who's willing to fight um, for ethical, what I could say, scientific integrity and public health policy. That's my motto. Yeah. So I'm going to quit talking so much and have Bill start talking. So, Bill, could you tell us about who you were a few years ago? You were in the military and then COVID hit. Can you kind of start there? Sure, sure. I mean, I, you know, first, I guess I would say, I'm, you know, I'm an unlikely uh, conscript in this fight. Um I, You know, I don't have a medical background. I don't have a I don't have a biological background. I always say, you know, my my biology education stopped in the 10th grade uh, when I completed high school biology. Um, 
but you know, so, so I'm just a regular Joe and who's been conscripted into this uh, by necessity. Uh, you know, I have children, I love our country and uh, enough is enough. You know, I have common sense. I can think clearly. I can think logically like so many people out there. I'm not here to make medical arguments. I'm not here to uh, go toe to toe with the so-called experts. The experts, by the way, that I don't know if we trust them the same way we did two years ago, two and a half, oh, three no. years ago. Hell no. And so, and so uh, I, it has changed my worldview. It has changed, uh, uh, you know, my desire to get engaged in this, really in this battle that, you know, uh, folks like you have been engaged in, and your guest previously, Wayne, uh, for, you know, for some time. Uh, I am a physical scientist. I, I practice water science here in the, in the uh, solve water problems here in the Columbia River Basin, the, the Great River of the West. Um, you know, so I know how to look at data and I know to, you know, I know what the expectations for scientific method are. So I have some uh, requisite background in that, but maybe my greatest skill, if you will, that I bring to this is that, you know, I, just through life experience, I've become unafraid uh, by people uh, who um, want to bully you. And um, it's time it's time to you know hit back against the, the bull, schoolyard bullies, the, the technocrats, people that think they had all the answers and have been wrong here for three years straight. Uh, so you know we can get more into that later, but boy, I think there's a real real broken trust between uh, the regular Joes like me and the medical community and, and the public health bureaucracy. Um, so anyway, to kind of move on to how I got engaged in this in the first place, I was, I was uh, long story short, I was, uh, had to retire early from the military after 25 years of active and reserve service, uh, in, as a Navy officer. Um, I was within months of completing my, uh, seventh, uh, tour command, uh, which is a significant number of command tours. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and the vaccine mandate came out. And long story short, the, you know, the military, the Navy specifically, they made it clear that they're going to um, cut the head of the snake off and, and set the example. So if you're a flag officer, which means an, an admiral, uh, or if you were in command, such as I was, or if you were um, a, a very senior enlisted, what we call a, a, a you know, a, a command master chief and the other services we call command sergeant major. If you're in those leadership positions, a senior leader, then they're going to lop that head off the snake very quickly and uh, make an example of you. So, you know, in essence, they did. Uh, they did really what all commanders fear most is, is called relieved for cause uh, because I had signaled my intention uh, to not get the vaccine and and also my intention, by the way, to not submit for a religious exemption or what we call an RA or religious accommodation. Um, Quick side note about that, you know, I, I witnessed very senior uh, person in in the Navy, very senior, um, essentially state that no RAs would be approved. And so mm -hmm. uh, that was a, a danger signal to me, for one. Uh, for two is, is you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and, I, you know, and I, uh, gladly so. Uh, but that said, the Constitution that I'm sworn to uh, support and defend protects all, even the non-believers. And for me to kind of hide, so to speak, behind a religious exemption was beside the point. Um, so I would probably still be in kind of awaiting my fate, as many of my shipmates are and the fellow soldiers and airmen that are out there. But um, 
because I was in this leadership position and I would not submit an RA, I was, you know, forced to, to retire. They had threatened to take my retirement. Uh, it turned out to be an empty threat, but seemed serious at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, plenty more details about that, but um, a couple things on perspective. Um, this mandate was sold as a um, it was sold as a force readiness issue. You know, we got to be able to ready to fight tonight, as we call it, and we got to be able to you know go, deploy anywhere in the world in a moment's notice and adapt to whatever condition those are. And if those conditions happen to be uh, yellow fever or diphtheria or you know uh, many of the other shots that we get. Uh, then we, you know, we need to adjust for that. And so you know, having to pull several times overseas, I have about every shot in the book um, and, and really never questioned. I even took the anthrax series back in the late 90s and really didn't question that. Um, but this one was different. It was sold as a force readiness issue. Uh, we got to be able to deploy anywhere in the world. Now, at this point, remember, this is 2021. So we're already a year and a half into this thing. And none of the predictions that they made panned out. Not right. a one of them panned out. And so already logical thinkers uh, were skeptical of the the necessity of of, uh, one is the vaccine, two is the mandate. So if it's a force readiness issue, let's take a look at the numbers. As of today, out of 2.3 million people who wear the uniform of the United States, only 96 have died by COVID. Right. That's using inflated, you know, whatever inflated PCR numbers they, you know, that that represents. Uh, and that's per DOD uh, right now as of today. <clears throat> uh, you know, we estimated tens of thousands might be leaving the force as a result of the mandate. The, the latest estimate I saw was about 300 to 350,000 personnel are still in limbo and pending, um, pending discharge. That doesn't count, by the way, all the people like myself that just up and left and retired early, all the reservists, uh, reservists serve at their pleasure. If they choose not to show up any longer, then uh, they're no longer under contract. You're not, there's no such thing as AWOL unless you're on an, an active duty status in the reserve. So, you know, how many tens of thousands or more reservists have we lost? How many hundreds of thousands of young men and women have not even gone into the recruiting office because they see the games that are being played with their lives. And we're not just talking about the COVID vaccine at this point. We're talking about the entire woke agenda. Uh, we're talking about, um, you know, the prospect or the specter right now of, of uh, uh, two possible near-peer conflicts, unlike we've seen since World War II. Exactly. For what? I mean, we don't even understand in those cases what we'd be fighting for. Neither do these young men and these young women. So um, notably, the, the People's Liberation Army, they are not required to take the mRNA shot. And I think most people may not realize that they don't have a widespread uh, vaccine program for their military. So, you know, Sun Tzu, people quote him all the time. Uh, it, it's not an actual general, as far as we understand. Uh, they think it's a, like a conglomeration of Chinese generals. and uh, But... You know, one of the things that he says is for to win 100 victories in 100 battles is not the acme of skill. To subdue the enemy without fighting is the acme of skill. Um, if we're in a near peer conflict anytime in the near future with China, 
they have already taken out hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops before the first shot was fired. Wow. So that's what we're up against. So, you know, I would note that um, there's not a person senior to me in the military that uh, took it on the chin. 100% of people senior to me rogered up, followed the order, which, by the way, is an unlawful order. It is. And, um, and kept their jobs. <clears throat> and so if, if they're... If, if our senior leadership, knowing that lack of necessity for the vaccine, knowing the risk to personnel, if they were unwilling to risk their career or future promotions in peacetime to maintain the status of the force and the health of the force, what kind of decisions are they going to make in wartime when real uh, lives are on the line? at that point. So I, I think we need to be a little f fearful of the lack of leadership and lack of courage that we're already seeing, uh, you know, play out in the senior ranks of the U.S. military. That, that, that is a damning statement. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so clear. It's so obvious from the even us from the outside, not in the military. Um, and who it was the one, uh, Brett Weinstein, who's an anthropologist, has said in his podcast, you know, in anthropology, when you don't, when there's a, a stated goal, do this, here's our stated goal, but there's some other outcome that happens and not their goal, you know, and, and you look and you examine and you research it, if, if the only thing achieved is this other something, then that other something was their goal all along. That's all they've achieved. And, you know, by now, if they're not backing off the shots, giving the overwhelming and in, in what they've even admitted, it, it is really alarming what has happened and, and what the devastation it's happening to our military. And I, I want to say before I forget, I want to thank you for your past military service and for your ethics and for really honoring this nation and the constitution by taking the stand you did and, and retiring, retiring early rather than doing something you knew was wrong. Um, I so admire that. A question for you would be, do you, maybe, maybe you're up late, not able to sleep thinking of this, how how do we help the military? How do we get back? How do we get leaders that actually, I know that chain of command in the military is important, right? You got to do what you're told, even though it's not comfortable. I mean, and unless it's really severe, you don't question because otherwise you got chaos and you can't have chaos in the military. But there, there must be some way where we can get back that that strength, that fighting force, that protection that this nation needs. Your thoughts? Yeah. No, I mean, you know, great question. I've I've given a lot of a thought to that. My my motivation. I mean, you know, what where I was at is is um, uh, you know, I I felt an obligation to my troops and to troops I don't didn't even know sailors I didn't even know. I mean, think about you know, I, I was fortunate. I you know, I was relatively senior and and I was uh, uh you know just past the ability to retire in grade. And, you know, I, and I got to have young kids and I have all kinds of reasons not to do this. And by the way, though, I mean, there's nothing like wearing the uniform of the United States. I mean, there's just nothing like that. And to give that up is not easy. Um, so, you know, 
for me, it was thinking about the troops. The the you know think about the mid grade E six, um, what we call first class petty officer on active duty, and he's got three kids, and he's got an MOS that doesn't necessarily translate well to the civilian world, and he's just over the ten year mark, and he's kind of all in. He's got to go for that pension at that point. That guy's stuck, or that gal's stuck at that point, and they had to take it. They had to take it for you know for what it really. Um, less altruistic purposes, reasons than, than I guess I'm trying to describe, uh, but yet way more important reasons, right? Their wife and kids or their husband and kids. And, um, and so they didn't have a choice. And so I, so really our, 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 you know, my obligation was, I felt like was to them. Um, you know, I, I've, I've since kind of lost the ability to do that from the inside. Um, I'm now trying to do that in my community from a different tack here with the, with the children. But the, uh, uh, those are the folks that we need to, to really uh, reach out and help. And so I, I really, you know, leaning on um, congressional leadership is about all we have. That's right. it's the only oversight the military gets. And to the extent that they'll listen, they'll listen to congressional oversight. Well, the, the military has for a long time um, too readily used our troops as you know, pincushions basically for experimenting with various um, with various vaccines and and different drugs, all in the name of we got to protect the troops. You might be going into something and and really not knowing the risk benefit ratio at all, um, or it's completely upside down that we've seen with Gulf War syndrome and and so many other things of the toxins that our troops are exposed to. And to me, it should be just the opposite. When you sign up for the military, our military should be served organic food and, you know, and just be given the, the best, everything they need to be really, really healthy and resilient. And ivermectin in every, you know, bug out bag or whatever you call those things. I'm obviously, I've never been in the military, so I don't know the terms, but um, anyway, I just think they go about it wrong. And, you know, the silver lining to this awfulness that's happening is there's a lot of systemic things that have been wrong, um, that are coming to the surface. And I hope not only do we begin to stop exposing our troops to the COVID shots, but all of the shots that are potentially, and I, I believe it should be freedom of medical choice. Let's face it, before they started giving them the, the measles or the mumps or the chicken pox shots, our troops were not dropping dead of all of these things, right? Yeah. And um, and when you look at the data in Washington State, you have to public records request it. Mm -hmm. But every year that we've requested the data, half of all the deaths in Washington State were vaccinated. And it would be even for the flu. And if and if you were to know, it's really weird where they'll say they'll give a uh, the number of how many vaccinated, not vaccinated, and unknown. And the unknown is always the biggest number. Right. I don't understand why there's an unknown. You got the flu vaccine within a couple of months, right? You get it once a year. How can this not be known? Why isn't there better data? And and the big COVID, how would you, some tests are down, down for an unknown for COVID vaccine, COVID shot. How would you not know that? The most in your face, biggest story of the year that person knows or their child knows or their mother knows whether they rolled up their sleeve and got it, please. Right. So these anyway, I'm going so, off on a tangent. <laughs> don't, don't forget, don't forget that the, we also have the DMED database 
that Tom Rents is now, uh, you know, uh, basically has has a copy of it. And now they're trying to scrub it as much as they can. And again, yes. every single service member has a medical record in a electronic yeah. format. And every single shot, procedure, process is mm-hmm. done. Yeah, now, they, they, they know. They know. I, you know, we know that the military knows. And, and for that matter, in the civilian healthcare system, they know every hospital go, you go to for the past two years, it's all about your vaccination status. And then it's just the hard sell to get your vaccine. Um, you know, I'll point out here in our community, we have a regional hospital. I think it, they would probably call it a regional trauma center for, for our uh, multi-county area. Yeah. And, it, you know, this hospital was dutifully tracking the status of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated hospitalizations uh, all along until the curves crossed. And, um, and then all of a sudden the vaccinated were being uh, hospitalized at a higher rate than the unvaccinated at one point. Uh, to the degree of, of a ratio of seven to one. And that's when they stopped reporting and they have not started resumed reporting since. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, clearly an agenda they know, and this is all going to come back on them at some point. I appreciate Wayne, your last guest perspective on, you know, how the liability will come together on that. And I not necessarily prepared to go too far down that rabbit hole with you all, because I'm not an attorney. I'm not a doctor, uh, you know, so <laughs> I'll probably uh, admit yeah. that, but, you know, but it, from a common sense perspective, it has to come back on them and it's gonna. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill, I'm not an attorney and I'm not a doctor. I just play one on CHD TV. No, <laughs> everybody, you know, needs to feel we're smart enough. I might not have gotten a degree, but I can in that I've, I can read the data. I can, what I like to say is I, I don't defer to experts. I refer to experts. I go read, I look deeply, I think critically, and then I make up my own mind. And this, this is what makes a nation free is an empowered, educated public. They want everybody to feel like, because you don't have that degree, that you can't possibly understand what is being said. And that is what really brings down a free nation, is when people feel like they have to defer to experts. And, you know, and I what I love about you is you reach out to people who know more and have experience. You know, not you're just not going to take it at all at face value, but you're going to read it and analyze it and get the data. And um, so... Let's get to then how you ended up. So you you retired, you started life over, you got a job, and then you were chosen to be on your county board of health. Can you explain how that happened? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I again, I retired out of the reserves. I, you know, I did active duty and then reserves and, and finished my career in the reserves. But so I already had a job and I started a small business and okay. science consulting. That said, I, you know, I was gone for a, really the better part of last summer trying to fight this battle within the military. Uh, the SecDef's order came out in uh, August of uh, 2021, and immediately after that, all the subordinate orders came out. And those subordinate orders, by the way, were actually the ones that are unlawful. The SecDef cleverly understood that um, they did not have you know, waiver authorization for the emergency use authorization. So they specifically, SecDef, specifically put in their order that uh, the order actually only applies to uh, FDA approved vaccines. And so that that makes that 
you know, in some ways that relieves the sec death of responsibility. But all the subordinate commands, much as we saw with uh, COVID, uh, the minions just march out and they carry out intent uh, and not necessarily letter. And so they ignored the letter and carried out the intent. And they're the they're the ones that are in actually in violation of, of the law. But uh, are all the various subordinate commanders to the Secretary of Defense? That's court um, martials level. It's court martial, and it's the reason why I could not follow an unlawful oh. order, right? Because then I would be in violation of the UCMJ. Oh. Okay, so for for an outsider here, I want to really understand that. So SecDef, every time you say that, that Secretary of Defense. So you're right saying. Often this that the the mandate on the military to get the shot only applied to the licensed shots which weren't available Correct. but down the chain of command that was it interpreted to mean they want us to give the soldiers these shots even if they're eua so they went ahead and did it because that's what they thought was the intent is that what you're saying correct and so to bridge the gap between uh, the, the Secretary of Defense order uh, that the troops take the FDA authorized vaccine and the unavailability of the vaccine, because it was never available, probably will never be available. Remember, there's been there's never been an FDA author, or FDA authorized vaccine for COVID given to one arm in this country, period. Right. And so so to bridge and paper over that, uh, uh, you know, BUMED and ARC, Bureau Medic, medicine in our case, they, they came out with a letter and said, well, um, the, the FDA approval says that uh, the BioNTech and the Corminati for Pfizer are uh, physically interchangeable. Therefore, the order applies, uh, you know, to even the EAU or the BioNTech, uh, the available vaccine. Uh, but the order that, <clears throat> remember the FDA approval for Corminati also says that they're legally distinct. So physically interchangeable and legally distinct. And so the, the military took that physical interchangeable element and, and made a lot of hay with it. And that's where the legal troubles are going to come for the United States military. Okay. Mm. Is there is there anybody um, working on this, working on legal action based on just what you told me? Uh, th there are. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've been in contact with several of them and um, we're okay. proud of them. Yay. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. So to, so to get back to answering your question, how did I get involved in Washington? Okay. So, so most, most health boards are comprised of elected officials or a combination of elected officials and maybe medical experts because rarely, except for Rand Paul, rarely will the two combine. Mm -hmm. And so they're county commissioners or they're mayors or they're city council members of that nature in Washington state. Uh, during during the pandemic a year ago, law went into effect that they're going to uh, cut half of the accountable elected officials and replace them with unelected appointees. And so um, half of the board then became uh, unelected appointees. And, um, uh, I, you know, if, if you want my opinion here in uh, deep blue Washington state, that's a way to get unelected people, unaccountable people onto the board. And yeah. I think that's the legislature and the governor want. Uh, yeah. I think in the case of me getting on the board, it backfired. And so- uh, Yeah. In, Informed Choice Washington opposed that bill. That's exactly what we thought. It's too easy for it to be manipulated. Yep. But then I can't believe that this bad law that 
gave us you, which is fantastic. So yay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So, so, uh, so I did, I, you know, I came back after being gone for the summer and then, and, and engaging in this fight with the military. And then, um, I saw that they were <clears throat> had a, emergency authorized, approved the vaccine for the five to 11 year olds. So for children. And so I, I thought, gosh, I'm going to go to my local health board. I'm going to see if we're actually giving this. Cause I, I was actually, uh, I was shocked to find out we were, I had no idea. I thought that, I thought that we were, would not be doing that. I was just out, outraged. And so I made some comment and I, you know, I presented some basic facts, ones that we all know. Uh, that were relevant and true at the time uh, based on uh, um, defensible sources you know primarily cdc mm -hmm. uh, and and uh and then i came back i did it the next month and then i found out that basically the health board was making appointees and so um, i applied there's 34 applicants they chose five of us uh, and so they they chose me um in in part because i have a kind of an environmental uh, health background if you will with clean water Mm -hmm. land you know toxic you know it toxics in the environment etc so anyway that yeah the press along the way they tried to destroy my appointment if you will and uh, by fact checking me and things of that nature calling it misinformation all that kind of stuff in fact this is hilarious they the the yokels uh, uh newspaper and the local media sites here uh they can't even do their own fact checking. They won't even, you know, they, they call the information that I bring forward and misinformation. They won't even look at it. They rely on, and they hire out third party fact checkers. They hire out PolitiFact. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Some of the assertions that I'm making. And I'm, I, you know, I'm a scientist for a living. So I'm very careful uh, only, only to, uh, put forward sources that, you know, that I hope I, that I believe that I can defend and, and rely on and, mm -hmm. uh, and to call this misinformation repeatedly, uh, is, is mal media malpractice. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I've said at the meeting before, uh, they better be right. Yeah, mm -hmm. they better be, they better be right. Yeah. Otherwise they're going to get enveloped in, you know, the wave of liability. Yeah, exactly. So, so you've been a, a breath of fresh air bringing up topics that usually are taboo and nobody wants to talk about. And we won't get into the details of politics because, you know, you're here to kind of inform everybody. And I, I don't want you to get in trouble politically talk, wrangling about those specific in, uh, issues or individuals. Too late. Too late. Wow. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Um, you know, and I never want this to be... Um, personal. I, I don't like ad hominem attacks against me or my people. And I don't, I try really hard not to do it against individuals. I just want to talk facts, products, you know, and let's just talk about the issue. Um, and I think it's great. It's like um, a bit of a squirrel, but the, the new book turtles all the way down, which is about the science and history of, of the vaccines. There's a reason why they are anonymous, why the authors are anonymous, the, the editors give their names, but they, if, if there's no um, author to attack, you have to wrangle with the material and they don't want to do that. So it, it just, um, anyway, just keep this all, you know, I would love vaccines to just go back into the world of consumer protection products, consumer products, so we can have level-headed, calm discussions. But, you know, there's just so much more behind them. Um, 
I did want to ask you because you said your your background you're you're about water you're about toxins, and I'm going to throw this at you. So I have no idea what your answer is going to be. And you know, and they say never in an interview ask anybody a question you don't know what they're going to answer here. But what are your thoughts on fluoride? I'm just curious. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you know, as a scientist is it should be a trained skeptic, right? Mm. I mean, that's my. Uh, you know, that's my my training. I, I'm a professional skeptic. And I, and, you know, I we need to as scientists, we need to be proud of that. Uh, and so that's what's led me to this. Don't get me started on anthropogenic global warming, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we want to go down that rabbit hole right now. But the, but uh, fluoride, I you know, from a medical standpoint, I, I can't make an argument one way or the other. Uh, I, you know, I, I have and I haven't seen epidemiological, you know, data to indicate that the, you know, systems that are flor uh, fluoridated or not, whether there's higher incidences of, of, you know, problems there. But I will say this, uh, if uh, <clears throat> we're on well water and, uh, you know, when our, our children were young, uh, you know, the pediatrician had them taking some fluoride supplements because the well water wasn't getting that. And we went along with that. We hadn't had any problems, uh, you know, but the, but the point is this, it's, it's, um, uh, it, people probably need to consent, uh, to what is, you know, being additive to their water and then mm -hmm. they can choose to, you know, to take that or not. So what I just described the supplement it is, that's a great way to get around the whole thing. It's really a childhood problem. You know, from what I understand from going to the dentist and I'm not going to play a dentist either is that, <laughs> you know, fluoride doesn't make as big of a difference in adulthood as it does when you're developing. And so if that's the case, you know, there's these delicious little tiny little fluoride tablets that the kids used to love. Uh, why can't we give households those and then not fluoridate the water would be yeah. one way. But and um, I love that it's it, it's consent, it's informed consent. But I just like with vaccines, um, fully informed consent doesn't happen with fluoride either. So if you as a scientist has have not gone down the rabbit hole to explore you know, the dangers of it, how it can undermine, affect IQ. A lot of the things that fluoride does is very subtle. I mean, you know, it's not going to make somebody have seizures and drop over like, you know, like a vaccine injury sort of thing. But it, it does play a large role in undermining health and um, don't, you know, things like something about the blood brain barrier. I, I It's been a long time since I've looked really closely at that. Um, but we have a big problem in this nation with um, something put out there in, with public health messaging, like, oh, make sure you've got fluoridated water and fluoride in your toothpaste. But don't you swallow the toothpaste because it's toxic, so spit it out because it's too much fluoride. So um, the real truth about fluoride and what it can do and um, the harm it can do is not put out there. So that's something, if you ever want, I know you're really busy with what you're doing, but if you ever want to take a closer look, I know there are people out there that have gathered all the data and all the science so that you can um, really inform yourself on that particular topic. There's so much that we do and have always done that one, another beauty of COVID, it's made a lot of us when we catch ourselves saying, oh, of course that's true. Oh, of course that's good for you. Step back and say, why am I saying this? Do I really know this? Have I actually done any studying of the body of knowledge out there? Or have I always heard that? And so I believe that, Right. you know? And yeah. so, 
Go ahead. Yeah. I, I'm just, I mean, just from my perspective, I, I, you know, I have not, uh, you know, we try to live a healthy lifestyle. We've been blessed with good health. Uh, so we, we don't have a lot of doctor visits. And so we haven't had to necessarily exercise is very important to me and my family. And uh, that said, uh, we just kind of went along. I mean, Hey, look, the bigger the hospital, the more uh, modern, the medical system, I, you know, I I'm in. And I, again, the past two and a half years, how long we've been doing this now, completely broken our trust. Uh, yep. The way yeah. we approach vaccines for our kids now, yep. uh, uh, the way we approach insurance, the way we, we the way we approach uh, what clinics we're going to, we're not going to the big hospital, we're going to the smaller clinics now that kind of offer an alternative care, uh, really 180 degrees different than it used to be. And that broken trust, uh, and then for that matter, anything coming from uh, under the banner of public health, I think needs to receive our scrutiny at this point. Uh, you know, really that's a, that's a bureaucracy it's it's a it's a movement and it and it and it's a big industry uh we need to view both the medical industry and the public health bureaucracy you know with a lot of skepticism now and it doesn't mean that they're not public health is not a good thing we, yeah. we want that we just have to take a hard look at this uh, uh the approach that they take you know you know bernadette uh you have gone to a couple meetings that's how i've come to know you and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've seen I, I put forward a couple common sense solutions, um, uh, you know, f well, first, you know, when I first was seated on the board here in, in June, um, you know, first order of business was to just just kind of get a feel for what people know and don't know. So I you mm -hmm. know, started, uh, uh, you know, asserting some some claims that are that are based in defensible uh, uh, from some defensible sources, that, that stuff we all know about the dangers of the covid vaccine. And uh, I had medical doctors tell me they've never heard of this. Uh, it was frightening uh, because I'm not qualified. Uh, you know, I, I was told, instructed that I had to defend my sources. And so I did. And so I developed a, an extensive 10 page uh, bibliography, annotated bibliography. I mean, much like we see on some of the better websites, but I developed it my own. Uh, and, uh, you know, the first link alone is over a thousand peer reviewed studies of the you know, of dangers from the vaccine there you and go so, uh, uh in response you know some of the board members came back with you know really pretty lightweight um uh, representations of their bibliographies of in defense of, of the vaccine and I, i've really just wanted to stand these two up uh, the public really actually needs to see these these two arguments made side by side and so that's one of the things i've been advocating for uh, is greater transparency uh, you know, I, I wanted the videos, I wanted the, the the meetings to be video recorded so people could go back and see them. And it, there was just lots of obfuscation for that because it, well, we need a, uh, we need to understand a cost study, how much it's going to cost it. You know, I mean, come on, a, a $30 hard drive from Amazon will solve the problem for 20 years of storage. Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's so much uh, resistance. Uh, yeah, one of the first things I did was uh, uh, introduce a measure to ban the vaccine, uh, the, the health department for giving the vaccine to minors. Uh, you know, that was roundly defeated nine to one, um, me being the one. Uh, mm -hmm. So the next month I come back and I, I uh, made an attempt, uh, another motion, uh, I think a very common sense uh, move to, uh, to form an ad hoc committee of, of medical professionals. I'm not going to do this from both sides of the vaccine argument uh, to, to review our informed consent procedure. What are people being asked and what are they being informed about before we put shots in their arms? Mm -hmm. uh, remember, this is an oversight board. 
I was appointed to the board. So my job is to oversight. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, so I'm going to do those things. And, and, and the board was incredulous. They, they really not only defeated that again, nine to one, they didn't want to take a look at the informed consent documents. And so but I did. And I found glaring discrepancies. Yeah, exactly. And I want to remember where you are, but I want to bring up a, a good point is what I observed. You know, everybody feels zero responsibility for the outcome of anybody receiving these shots, any shots. They've been absolved of any sort of responsibility. But when you brought up making changes to the county's informed consent form, there was alarm. You could see there's notice because somebody said, well, if we change the wording and, and something happens and somebody gets hurt, what does that mean? We could be in trouble because we didn't use the standard form. So suddenly they cared. They didn't care whether or not it saved somebody from a, a vaccine injury. They cared whether they'd be responsible, maybe if somebody said no to the shot because they were fully informed and then they got sick, right? They care, And that's why we need the vaccine maker and our public health officials in some way to be like the only way a public health official should be absolved of being responsible is if they actually have provided all the information that is needed for that real uncoerced, uninfluenced informed consent or informed refusal, right, to happen. And that that really, that was a holy cow, look at them. We need to make them feel responsible, not feel, be responsible, and then they'll do the right thing. Um, I think, just think that's so important. So go ahead. Yeah, right. And so so had we conducted a review of, uh, of the adequacy of the existing informed consent procedure, uh, <clears throat> irrespective of, 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 uh, you know, the dangers of the COVID vaccine, uh, which is one of the considerations I, I you know, I, I wanted to uh, take into account when reviewing the informed consent procedure. See, that is a way of reducing the board's liability. Again, I, I'm put on the board to uh, oversee the board and, and to do what's in the best interest of the public health uh, on behalf of, you know, uh, to provide help provide policy for the board. So mm -hmm. I also need to help protect the board from and the health district from liability. And so one way to do that is to make sure everybody that's receiving a shot has been duly informed. And so uh, so that, that's logical to me. Well, I look at this thing, I was told that, that one of the reasons that they, they wouldn't wanna conduct a review is because it was already in compliance with CDC guidelines. So I looked at CDC guidelines, it's woefully out of compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, what's one of the first things that you are asked when you go to get any vaccine? It's about allergic reaction. Have you had an allergic reaction to this shot before? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even ask about allergic reactions. So medical people call that a contraindication. And according to the CDC, that's a hard stop. You don't vaccinate. So if somebody had an adverse reaction or an allergic reaction to one of the previous vaccines, a medical professional would be forbidden from vaccinating them with the same vaccine. We're not even asking that question. No. Uh, you know, there's another question about uh, about uh, uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, uh, whether you're a child or an adult, if you've had that, uh, you know, that our informed consent document doesn't even ask that question. CDC says, hey, if you've had this miss, then you need to wait 90 days before you get the shot. So even CDC has woken up to this, but our local health board has not, and they refuse to even look at it. And so, 
so that's just that's just our little county and that's what's going on in our two county health board but there's 3200 of these health boards or more across the nation and mm -hmm. this is going on in each one of them. And that's really kind of the next thing I think in the you know remaining time if, if, that we probably need to talk about is like, well, how do I get engaged? We, how do I influence? Yeah, these? we got like one minute here. <laughs> so yeah, how do we get involved? And, and real quick that I want to say at the last board meeting, somebody proposed and they all voted that you could not bring up COVID-19 unless it was on the agenda. So they're trying to so, um, but yeah, so how, what, give everybody your advice of, of, of what to do. And what I love is you're trying to institute what is missing, checks and balances in public health. Everybody points up to C the CDC, but no, we need to make our um, accountable at the county level. And then the change will start from the ground up. So go. Right. What good is a local health board, a county health board or a municipal city health board, if all they do is rubber stamp CDC or the state health department policy? Fine. Fire that health board, fire that old health department, get the state people in here to run everything. Uh, <clears throat> without local added value, uh, they shouldn't really even be in that position. Uh, well, you should fire the so, state people too, because they just point to the CDC. So we could save enough. a lot of money if nobody's going to actually make any critical decisions and and push back against the CDC. What good are they? So Bill well, Sullivan, we're, is, we're, go ahead. The CDC is pointing back at us, and, and there is there is a total lack of accountability occurring in this whole process. Exactly. There's no checks and balances. There's no accountability. But we got good people like you, honorable men. Uh, it, it's such a, a pleasure and honor to meet you, uh, Bill Sullivan. So if anybody wants to find them, just look up the Chelan Douglas County Board of Health and you too can sign up to attend one of their meetings and see him in action, attempting to bring some scientific integrity to their public health policy. Uh, and with that, we've got to go. You've been listening to an Inform Life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming live to CHD TV. I am hearing the music and everybody take care. We'll see you next week. Bye now. Thank you, folks. Thank you. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than the Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people by the people who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it healthcare, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? 
If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.